0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Lighthouse Flyby Writers Project brings exciting up-and-coming authors to Denver for a whirlwind weekend of literary events, including craft seminars, a fundraising reception, readings, informed discussions, and book signings. During the reception of the April 2013 Flyby Writers Project with Lauren Groff, Lighthouse's guests took to the grotto to hear a professional reading from Lauren's short story collection, Delicate Edible Birds, performed by an actor from Stories on Stage.
1: Thank you all so much for being here for our fifth Flyby Writers Project dinner. That seemed a little lukewarm, but that's cool. That was much better. Public shaming works. You heard it here first. Um, Anyway, this has been so much fun, and we're so thrilled to have Lauren Groff here um, tonight. And those of you who came to her workshop today can attest to the fact um, that she's not only young and beautiful and talented, she's wicked smart. And um, not fair. That's just not fair.
0: Um,
1: So we originally came up with this idea because of Denver's geographic location as kind of the place a lot of people stop and sometimes even go to Tattered Cover. And why don't you know, a lot of these people who are writing have stuff to tell us that we desperately need to know, like what kind of pen to use and what font. <laughs> what was the initial idea of the Fly By Writers Project is, if you're flying by anyway, why not stop and hang out in Denver and get to know some of our writers and share what you know that makes you you, so that we can become you. And, um, and that's been working really well, but this time, Lauren wasn't coming through town, and I'm, I'm confessing this. She was not coming through town. It's more like a helicopter in. I, I said, can we have you here anyway, even though you're not coming in? And she was so gracious and said yes. We're so thrilled. Um, so thank you for making the trip. She's been up since 2.30. My time. Her time. Which is 4.30 our time, so that's not that bad. <laughs> Um, So, um, we've already said a little bit about Lauren, and you're going to hear one of her stories, which kind of speaks for itself. Um, But I started reading her a few years ago and thought, who is this brilliant middle-aged woman uh, who's had so much life experience that I don't have to feel threatened by her? And then looked her up, and I thought, oh, shoot. And I said, well, she probably doesn't have kids, and she has two little children, And, um, so really, she's your nightmare, but she's great. (laughs) And we're going to hear one of the stories from her collection, Delicate Edible Birds. She's also written two novels, The Monsters of Templeton and Arcadia, which are both back there. Arcadia is a finalist for the LA Times Book Award, Cross, Fingers, Send Good Vibes. And she finds out in a week or two about that. And, um... We're going to have a presentation from stories on stage here tonight, which we 're very excited about and those of, have you all been to stories on stage? Do you know yeah. stories on stage? You know they take what all of us do and they make something really cool out of it that you don 't i mean you can read a short story on the bus if you take the bus, which is great if you do i don 't <laughs> um, <laughs> but you can read a short story and have an experience and maybe it even changes your day. But when you're in a theater hearing a short story read by a professional who, who can bring life to it that the author probably intended, um, there's something really amazing about sharing that experience with a room full of people it's not quite theater and it's, it's not quite a reading it's somewhere in between and you'll, you'll see that I'm always a little bit afraid right at the beginning of a stories on stage uh, presentation I think oh no am I going to be like bored or something <laughs> <laughs> but it never happens it never happens it would be best if I introduce <laughs> Martha Harmon Party, who is right behind me. She has been in the Denver Center Theater Company's Pride and Prejudice. Who did you play? Um,
2: Mrs. Gardner. Sorry.
1: Oh my God, Mrs. Gardner is my favorite. Um, she's been in Bus Stop, The Glass Menagerie, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Mercy Seat, at Curious Theater. She's been in Up Fiction, Arvada Center, um, Squall, the, you can see she's been in everything, right? And she's, she's amazing. Her, her voice can be heard in 1,250 books, narrated books on tape. Um, she's won the Digital Platinum Award from the Braille Institute. She won the 2007 Denver Post <coughs> Ovation Award for Best Actress. And that was for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And she had an ovation nomination for Best Actress and The Mercy Seat. I could go on, but you'll see. Thank you for coming, and please welcome Martha Harmon Pardee. I was
2: um, I was sent a Lauren Story uh, just, I don't know, PDF, whatever. I don't speak that language very well. And um, as I was reading through it, it was funny. There were, um, it was just heaven to read. And there were a couple words that kind of made me go like this, and I didn't, I didn't get that. And so just now I grabbed a copy off the table, and the words that bothered me were wrong. So I'm punting, and I'm going to read right from the book rather than because I don't want to get a single one of these delicious words wrong. Um, sorry, it was set up beautifully for me to be standing, but since I have a book, I'm going to... So, one second, sorry. technical portion. Everybody can hear okay? Yeah? Okay, great. <clears throat> the Wife of the Dictator by Lauren Groff. The Wife of the Dictator is sallow and strange. She's a plump woman. Uncomfortable here in the hot sun with our cocktails and croquet, she has not yet learned to perspire with grace. In one hour, her gray silk dress is dotted, then black with moisture. She speaks little, moves in a series of small fidgets, wears a corset. When she stands to excuse herself and gives us her hand, It is so soft, it seems almost to not exist at all. What has been reported is true. The dictator has brought back a wife from his last visit to America. It is also true that she is not one of us. We survey the hole in the air where she had been sitting, let it fill for a moment with the scratchy tenor of the gramophone, The children shriek at the edge of the lake with their nannies. We mix more gin into our drinks. When the dictator's black car slides from the compound, dips from sight into the city, and then later beetles up the hill toward the pink palace glistening in the sun, we at last feel free to wonder. The dictator is an enormous man with a cruel mouth, We like to watch him on his chestnut charger when his troops are doing maneuvers on the parade grounds. Wherever could he have gotten this plump sparrow of a wife? And why, when he could have picked one from the 10,000 good families of his own country? Trembling girls with downcast eyes and charming virginal figures. If he must marry an American... To discharge what secret debts he holds, could he not have chosen one of our daughters or one of our friends? Some fine laughing girl who would know how to entertain us at the palace. A girl who would at least look good beside him, the dictator on horseback. The tiny monkeys chew red fruits and cast the sticky seeds down into our hair. Her family must be very rich, we say. And imagine train lines, coal mines, houses in Newport. Woozy under the sun and drink, someone says she looks like a medium. And we imagine her in a dark room, ectoplasm spinning from her mouth, voices of the dead rising from within her to enchant the dictator into an occultish love. Or maybe we say she sat opposite him on a train, And her plainness moved the dictator to pity, his hard heart dissolving into a thousand small butterflies that flitted away with his sense. We drink, we speculate, until our heads ring wild. We are ossified, we laugh, we are zazzled. At home, in a peak, we put our good dresses away. They hadn't been worth wearing now, had they? <laughs> the evening cools, and from the city, smells of strange cooking waft up to us. When our husbands come home from the company, from the embassy, we sit beside them as they eat their supper, Like our children who hold up for our scrutiny, the strange stones they find by the lakeside, green-veined, bulb-shaped chunks of this country, we hold the dictator's wife up for our husband's amusement. We exaggerate her oddness, say she reminds us of our mother's generation, conservative and dark, of Queen Victoria. We turn her this way and that, and in the process we make her an object of wonder. The dictator is only two years a dictator, a man from an obscure mountain city. There had been unrest in his country for a decade, bloodshed and bandits. From the turmoil, the dictator was spat into power, as smooth and hard as a gem. The city is still ensconced in the 19th century with its alabaster gas lamps and carriages still more plentiful than automobiles. His grandeur suits it well. There is something in him that makes other men smaller. At the few dinners to which we were invited when he was a bachelor, we watched his tanned, scarred face, his hawk nose, the vast breadth of his shoulders. And when he put his eyes on us, we might as well have been nude. <laughs> By hints and dribbles, <laughs> we hear of the dictator's wife in her former life in St. Louis. To escape the humid fug, we float in the women's pool, waiting for the cocktail hour, and talk of what we've learned. She is four years older than the dictator we now know, the widow of another man, the mother of a dead son. She was born into nothing, a provincial dull family, married a boat captain on the Mississippi. On their boy's ninth birthday, his father took him on a trip. A flash flood and the ship foundered and sank, drowning her husband and boy. In grief, the dictator's wife took up painting. She painted scenes of epiphany, revelation, saturated with color details to make grown men weep. She is Catholic, like the natives, we hear, and we can't help but see her in the confessional, the grill casting shadows like lace on her skin, her thin mouth hungry for grace. When next we see her, dutiful, at the dictator's side at a dance, we watch her delicate hands with a new interest, See the poignancy of the gold cross at her throat. Study the way her dark hair frames her face. We feel a warmth not unlike pity in our chests. This surprises us. Mater dolorosa. She has become newly interesting. A dark flower of sorrow transplanted to the strange soils of this bright place, A woman famous for painting angels. The rainy season arrives and we can no longer swim in the pool or walk by the lake or play croquet or complain about the heat. We can no longer stand on the hill and watch the young officers through our binoculars. There are the endless tea parties, the dramatic recitations of Shakespeare, the new chaplain we love no less for being a whole year late, the remaking parties when we take apart our old dresses and refashion them according to the magazines our friends and sisters send us, letting down the waists and necklines, heaving up the hems... We smoke cigarettes out the window, eat pastries until we gasp for air in our clothing, squash spiders under our thumbs, too weary to make much of a fuss. Affairs spark up during the rainy season and fizzle along in the dampness. Our husbands eat their lunches at the club, and we are relieved that we don't have to entertain them, too. When we are reduced to watching the pots of geraniums on the verandas fill with water and overspill, we scold our servants for their lapses in housekeeping. They stand, eyelashes on their cheeks, until we release them. We're sure they talk about us in their language in the kitchen. It aggravates us until we want to slap them. Sometimes we do. We watch the pink palace on the hill, a subdued coral now that it is wet. We wonder if the dictator's wife ever slaps her servants. We doubt it, and we resent her for it. (laughs) The rains let up at last, and we allow our children to play in the mud puddles. The dry air in our chests feels like a long sob, Some of our servant sisters work in the palace and it is from them that we hear that the dictator's wife is now thickening around the middle. When we meet one another on a clear, cool day, we laugh behind our hands. So that's what the dictator and his wife do when it rains, we giggle. Though the image of the dark, plump woman and the grunting, vast man together is surreal... It does make a certain sort of sense. We have asked our sisters and friends to send us articles about the dictator's wife and her art. Famous people consume us because we are bored. In the article, she is described the way we see her, but in kinder tones. Words like pale for our sallow, unearthly for our strange. (laughs) She describes her art as products of visions, ghastly revelations that would not let her sleep until she set them down as exactly as possible on the canvases. When at one of our bridge parties, out of boredom or tipsiness, we blurt out a question about her painting, she flushes She looks down at her jostling knees, and in her quiet voice, she says, But I no longer paint, you know. I haven't needed to since I married the dictator. We are so flabbergasted that hers is a talent that can turn on and off like a fountain according to need, that it is only later when we are alone and drifting off to sleep, that we realize how odd it is, too, that she, too, calls her husband the dictator.
0: <laughs>
2: Our husbands at night tell us a story. The dictator took a few of the generals, some of the higher ranking of the company and embassy, over to his hunting camp, where the sugarcane meets the jungle. A party of thirty, plus servants, they were there to hunt boar. They awoke before dawn, when the jungle was filled with hooting monkeys and great cats slinking in the shadows. When the thrashers at mid-morning rustled up an enormous boar, grunting with horrific power and fury, the men circled their horses and waited for the dictator's command. In lieu of bringing the gun to his eye and simply killing the beast, he slid down and put his gun to the ground. He approached the boar, which fell silent, watchful as he neared. When the dictator was a mere foot away, the boar bowed his head the prelude to spearing it up and gutting the dictator with his tusks. But before he could, the dictator planted his knife in the base of the boar's neck, and the great beast collapsed in a geyser of blood. When our husbands tell us this story, we wonder what it would be like to be married to a man who could kill a beast with his hands. (laughs) We look at our husbands' balding temples, their concave chests, their pale shoulders, and try not to laugh. (laughs) This isn't the end of the story, our husbands protest. They prop themselves on their arms, leaning over us in their eagerness. As he drove the knife in and the boar collapsed, there was a smile on the dictator's face. It was a sweet, shy look, our husbands say. It was the kind of smile better worn by a man in love. We hear reports. There is unrest again at the country's edges. If possible, the dictator grows even more stern Our husbands tell us not to listen to the radio, that we should not worry one whit. And because we know not to ask what they do at the company or the embassy, we take them at their word. There are few cars in this small country, and those that pick our husbands up in the morning, whether from the company or the embassy, appear to be the same. When the wife of the dictator is six months expecting, the dictator rides off with a few battalions to quell the militants. Over the city falls a new gentleness, a new quiet, and in the trees land flocks of strange green birds that end their rills with metallic clicks. When the birds startle at a sound, it looks as if the trees are tossing handfuls of their own leaves into the skies. We can hear the bands in the square at the bottom of the hill. We find ourselves dancing to them as we ready ourselves for bed. We shimmy, we Charleston, we bunny hug. We imagine ourselves at great gay parties where these things come to us with ease. The night the wife of the dictator goes into labor, heat lightning, branches blue across the sky, and our hair yearns staticky toward our brushes. We can't sleep. We sit on our verandas, smoking our clandestine cigarettes, and across the compound see other embers floating, fireflies of disquiet. The electricity breaks around two with a thunderclap and torrential rain. We are chasing frogs from our porches in the morning when we hear the news. The dictator charged into the city on his wheezing horse in the midst of the storm and hurried into the palace. The mud mud clotted thick and black on the carpets behind him. When he reached his wife, his face was so dirty and wet she screamed as if he were a baboon come in from the jungle. The dictator knelt, he shuddered, he held her little pale feet in his hands as if they were delicate as teacups, and he kissed them. With the last push and convulsion, the dictator's wife near dead with fatigue and fear, the tiny baby emerged at last, all skinny and blue. The dictator sat back on his heels, country-style. And when the doctor at last got the baby to breathe and mule, the dictator stood and left the room because she was only a girl. We see the dictator's wife everywhere, it seems, and nowhere. While the dictator is fighting the rebels, she pushes her babe down by the lake in her perambulator, trailed by the useless pretty nannies the dictator hired. She refuses a wet nurse, which is not done here, and the native ladies have turned indignant. We hear they have refused to invite her to their teas. We wonder at her solitary life now. It can't, we think, be a hardship for her? The news from the border is not good The opposition forces, they say, are resilient and clever at blending into the countryside. The papers hold photos of the dictator, enormous and severe, in his command tent in the jungle. When we see them, we are filled with a hot thrill and wish, briefly, that we could read the language and understand the captions. Some of our husbands are sent to the plantations, the mines, the embassy, with more frequency. And when they return, they stare at their knees with a blank look. But a few days soaking in the gentleman's pool, a few nights at the club, and they are normal again. We have our charity bazaars for the victims of the dengue fever, which is gripping certain tight-packed segments of the city We have our ice cream socials. We keep busy. Our servant sisters who work in the palace relay rumors that the dictator's wife sometimes awakes shrieking in the nights. They say she wanders the white marble halls in her humble slippers, passing like a ghost through the shadows. When a servant comes upon her she does not appear to see and passes as if her eyes are fixed on another world. We wonder what the dictator's wife is thinking of at those times. Her dead son? Her dead husband? Those two souls lost under the thick murmuring water of a distant river? Or if, like us, she dreams of a vaster country one where she is not caged in the palace as we are caged in our compound. Or if she ever longs to take up brush and palette again, paint that old life away until the grief rises time and again gently back into the heavens. The dictator is shot in the foot. He returns home to the palace gray-faced and grim to recuperate. He has left his generals in charge in the jungle. The little girl is walking now, an unfortunate small replica of her mother. And in public, she shrieks into her mother's skirts and hides her face from our children, who would not hurt her. (laughs) The dictator's wife is wearing new colors, greens and purples and indigos, and on her head, she now wears hats with chin-length veils. When we search out her eyes, we believe we see bruises around them, and from that moment on, we don't search them out anymore. Later, we wonder if they are not bruises, if she is simply exhausted from all of the sleep she has been missing. When they are together in public, the dictator rarely turns his eyes from his wife, We almost never hear her subdued voice now. A brief respite. A cruise ship needing repair docks at the marina and there descends into the town a pair of celebrated lovebirds weeks into their honeymoon. They are known to everyone who knows anything about the theater. Our magazines are months behind. Only recently have we gotten news about this romance. The actress is golden as a songbird with a sharp little face. The actor is a small man with a barrel chest. When we hear they are in port, we leave the pool in a hurry, still smelling of the oil we spread on our skin, and try not to run to the bazaar, where they are buying armfuls of textiles and tin sculptures. When we arrive, however, so does a car for a luncheon arranged with the dictator's wife, We can hardly see the actors before they are whisked away. Morose, we buy drinks at a bar that we believe has only ever known men and sit at the tables abandoned by the chess players when they saw us coming. We move the pawns about, dreaming of what we would do with this country if we were the dictator's wife, flicking the bishops and kings with our fingers. In an hour, the car hums down the hill again. When the actors climb, laughing from the car, after them climbs the dictator's wife, like their single dark shadow. She is smiling, we see. She follows them to the gangplank, and they give her elaborate kisses on the cheek when they part. The boat's lines are thrown, the boat edges away from the dock, and when it is heading firmly towards sea again... We watch the small form of the dictator's wife as she stares after it. When she turns, we lose the sharpness of our envy. Always pale, she is deathly white. And though she was plump when she came to our country, her clothes hang loosely on her now. We wonder if what the servant girls say is true. That she sleeps very little any longer, that she spends her nights staring out the window, horror on her face, that the last time the dictator was home, she ducked away when he tried to embrace her. The rainy season comes and goes. Our beautiful young lovers are gone in the war, and we must content ourselves with books turned stale with humidity. Phonographs playing the same fatigued songs. At our tea parties, there fall long swaths of silence, which in earlier times we'd break by laughing, saying, an angel is passing over our roof. We do not bother now. Our servant girls bring reports of starvation in dark parts of the city. But when we go down in an investigation, in an investigatory cluster to see what we can do. The smell is so terrible that we do not go again. We see writing on the buildings that appears to be angry, and there are people who stare at us with frowns on their faces. Our children seem pallid and whiny, mere specters of children Our husbands are gone for longer stints and will not tell us where they have been when they return. We pay the servant girls for their rumors, and the rumors trickle in more thickly. The guerrillas, they say, are peeling the dictator's forces back, pushing them toward the city, decimating the ranks of those beautiful young men. Because we can do nothing about it, we pretend not to know. And we hear now worse rumors about the dictator. What cruelties his armies are unloosing. Suspected insurgents, punched in the stomach while their heads are held in buckets of water, almost drowned this way, they cough up any confessions that are suggested to them, A special battery hooked to the nipples, a special torture. Phalanxes of hooded insurgents marched somewhere, never seen again. Villages in the way burned, survivors gutted. We hear that there is an ex-butcher on the dictator's special team called the Flayer, and we must stop ourselves from imagining what he does. One day, before our husbands rise to the breakfast table, we flip open the newspapers and see the photograph on the front page. The dictator is frowning in his tall boots, and there is a pole suspended between two lieutenants beside him. Strung like beads on the pole, threaded through the tongue, are the decapitated heads of men, each died, grimacing. We are modern women. Some of us bob our hair and wear trousers at home. We are not fainting types our mothers were. Still, after this, even we walk around the house feeling weak, feeling as if our legs are made of air. Our husbands come home early from work one evening and tell us grimly that the barbarians are at the gates. The dictator has been useless, they say. When we press, they say that there are other forces at work. We should not worry our heads about it. We wait. The pool is blue stone inlaid in the ground, untouched. The monkeys get into the kitchen. Leave flowery imprints on the pianos, and we let them. The city itself seems to draw its tentacles in. Things are so quiet, we can hear the distant sounds, the, lull, the low, dull explosions, and the cracks of the guns. Some of our servants go home at night and do not return in the morning. We have difficulty finding coffee, then bread, The dictator's wife comes to sit with us on the overgrown lawn, the bougainvillea threatening to swallow the tennis court. She has been to the cathedral, she tells us, but the doors were closed. She found a side entrance to the priest's house and found the priests at the kitchen table eating toast still in their pajamas. They would not look at her in the eye. They would not give confession, she says they silently refused. She says this, her body still, this woman who jitters when calm. Never beautiful, she has become ugly with fatigue, her skin lined. Her daughter hides behind her chair, and we notice the girl's mouth is the dictator's own. One by one, She plucks out gray hairs from her mother's head And though her mother winces with each pluck She allows it We have little to offer the dictator's wife now Except our silence and more tea I have dreams The dictator's wife starts to say When she raises her face Her pupils have swallowed her irises we are reminded again of a medium in mid-seance of the plain quiet widow she had once been in a St. Louis parlor limming a canvas with her paint and visions I know everything he has done she says in the middle of the night a knock on the door and we have packed every and we who have packed everything get into the cars and glide down the hill The younger children are sleeping against our shoulders, and there is the smell of smoke in the air. Our husbands are grim and do not speak. We do not say goodbye to our remaining servants or to the booze we cannot take home to our dry country. We do not say goodbye to the compound, our lovely houses, the pool in which we have spent so many of our years. The darkness swallows it all. The marina is protected by a line of our own officers with guns on their shoulders. If the natives knew we are leaving, we do not see them in the night. And it would not matter. We cannot take them. In the distance, there are terrible sounds. When we are on the boat, we breathe again. Not one of us asks our husbands to fetch the dictator's wife who is alone in the pink palace on the hill, her daughter sleeping beside her. We have made our own choices in this life. The dictator was hers. There is something that unfurls in us when we think this, and we dare not examine what it is. Still, as the boat unhitches from the dock and quietly moves into the harbor, we see the palace dwindle into a dark lump on the hill and imagine her there in the gilded chamber, the dark carved bed swinging with velvet drapes. We imagine her at the window watching the fires royal from the edges of the city. The sky is touched with a terrible glow and our ship is a dark spot fading against the greater darkness. Then... In the moment between the thump of one heartbeat and its sweet sliding after, we at last see what is before her eyes. We see great flights of angels in flapping robes descending upon the city, their faces terrible with bloodlust and fury. We see the furious melee, the young boys falling, the old people huddled in their apartments, the dictator wild on a screaming horse, and the boar-hunting knife in his hand. In this moment, we know his strength is only her own last strength, which he pulls from her, for that is what this marriage was. The dictator coming into the gallery in Washington, feeling small under the power of those paintings, turning to the little dark woman standing patiently beside him in her widow's weeds, knowing in that moment the terrific power in her, everything he could use of hers. We watch through her now. As she sees the ragged bandits crash in one great wave, then two great waves against the palace, find entry. She closes her eyes and leans her forehead against the window. Like that, she is emptied. At last. We will not tell one another what we knew just then. We are not sure we will ever admit it to ourselves. As we see the city dwindle into a small speck of light, we lean against our husbands, who are not strong and do not fight. But at least they have gotten us away. They, wanting to comfort, put their arms around us. And they are comforted for all their own errors in their turn.
3: going to take martha with me everywhere i go from now on because okay i I just yes she's ridiculously awesome um i discovered things about the story i never knew through your reading thank you so much and thank you so much for having me you guys have built a utopia here in the middle of denver you. I would go anywhere for you. You know this, right? Okay. So build another one in Gainesville. Um, so, so I can answer questions or, or, you know, just spout off. I'm happy to do either. Tell you a, another dirty joke. I told a d- dirty joke today. Yes.
0: What did you discover about your own story that you didn't know before from hearing it
3: from Um. Well, there are moments that I didn't know were funny. Uh, until Martha interpreted them, and and now I do. And so thank you. Um, you know, I actually haven't read the story since the book came out in two thousand and nine. So um, it, for a while, I I didn't think that I had written it. <laughs> but you know slowly i got into you know into the story um, and and that was an amazing experience actually to, to sort of hear it through someone else's voice who's such a talented performer um wow um and now i know what to do before my next book comes out <laughs> to take lessons from a master um yeah yeah so Also, I heard some repetitions of my own words that, you know, I was like, oh, come on, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) But you always hear those. No matter how many times. I've read this one story that I've been reading for uh, a couple of months now. I've read it probably um, ten times. And this past uh, visit, which I I, uh, took to Trinity College up in Hartford, I found, you know... Some mistakes. So you know, you never, you never quite get everything. I think. Do we have more? We can also go up and get wine. Yeah.
0: Not a long question, because wine is open. Um For those of us who were at the workshop today, can you maybe
3: talk about the idea of structure in this story? Or sure. So I talked about structure today um, um, because, because I love structure. It's, it's one of my favorite things to think about, when I'm, especially when I'm revising. With this particular story, when it came to me, um, it came to me over the course of probably two years, which is a fairly short lifespan for a story inside of me. Um, and I, all that I knew about it was that I wanted to talk about dictators in general um, and about American... Um, Response to terrorism in a very small part, um, and I wanted to talk about the way um, um, that women have been have re- been related to their husbands as, a, as opposed to being their own people in life and that 's all I knew um, and and then you know the structure actually the architecture of the story came from the decision to write in the first person plural. And suddenly, as soon as I made that decision, everything else sort of unrolled with the, with the sort of the physical um, setup of the story. Um, and, and then I knew how to tell the story. Um, but it took me a few years to, to sort of understand how to, how, to, how to get there. But Thank you. It happens that way. Uh, yeah.
0: And, and and not
3: named Right. And I wondered how
1: um in your head you how, how you created something that is that is real and specific and feels like it references specific places to me and yet
3: doesn't. Right. Yeah. How, how do you do that? Well um so I'm a deep lover uh, of fairy tales um and they sort of do the same thing if you if you look at the way that fairy tales are, are written they're profoundly specific but they're also universal and and most of the time the the location is not named and so i i also knew as soon as the we voice happened um that it was a fairy tale that i was writing um, also, because you can bring in fantastical elements without a whole lot of dissonance, and you can bring in you can bring in anything into a fairy tale. And actually, a lot of my stories have a sort of an underpinning of fairy tales um, underneath them, even if only I see see the fairy tale. Um, plus, there's a lot of just brutalism in the fairy tales themselves. And so I just I felt that that was a, a sort of a good frame for this story. Um, and I, and I wanted to talk about universal. Um, you know, sort of the the dictatorship, um, so I, I couldn't actually specify, um, but I when you write you have to have moments that are concrete and detailed. So so it was a struggle, <laughs> to be honest. But it was fun, you know, to, to create this false. Not I mean I hope hopefully you know not false, but this this um, place that is its own place while also being every place it's um, it's a challenge mm-hmm. yeah. yes I'm sorry back to the
2: um, first person Pharrell, um, as, as she was reading I really thought about um, the Buddha in the
3: attic do you know? Julie yeah that came out last year
0: yeah yeah, yeah. It, Do you, do you know uh, did, or did you draw from other stories or novels that are, are, are written that way or are told from the point of view of, of a collective,
3: particularly women? My book came out in 2009. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I thought I was doing something unique, um, and then Julie went and got you know like 500 different awards for her book, which is great. <laughs> uh, uh, that's the way it goes. Um, but uh, no, and I and I'm sure other people have done it before too. But I, it, it was really just um, uh, the way that the story worked best when I was working it out in my head was in the the first person plural. Um, But I, I don't remember. I mean, I'm sure we have a body of collective knowledge that's astonishing. I'm sure someone here knows of some other book before 2009 that was written in the first person plural. Yes, such a good book. All right, so I wasn't being, yeah, so that was 2008, I believe, I think. That is such an amazing book. Yes, you're right. All right. So, yeah, no, I was totally lying when I said that I thought I did something unique. Um, The Virgin... By the way, The Virgin Suicides is by far Eugenides' best book. By far. Not even a question. It's so good. It's so good. If you haven't read it, you have to read it. It's from the point of view of these men, these boys, you know, um, pubescent boys, Growing up in a neighborhood, watching um, this family of beautiful girls and how they sort of self destruct. It's phenomenally interesting. Um, yeah, you're right. I'm a stealer. That's all right. We all steal, right? Who is it that said, um, Bad artists borrow, but good artists steal? Was it T.S. Eliot? Thank you. See, I, I need you too. So we'll all tour together, and you can tell me what I'm doing wrong, and then like shout from the audience, like the really smart. I love that. I love it. Are we good? Thank you so much. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you.
0: Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.